I want to say again a big welcome to all of our family and especially to our friends who are with us uh, today. Thank you for coming. Thanks for carving out this special time of family worship together with us. To our friends who are in the overflow areas, we love you and we're grateful for you as well. And also for those who are joining us online, what a blessing it is to have you with us. I want to just announce a couple of really important things. Tomorrow we start a renovation of our parking lot. And so for those of you who uh, will be worshiping with us uh, for the next several weeks, and we certainly hope you will come back and be with us if you're visiting, uh, please know that it's a little bit of uh, discomfort for a whole lot of convenience. We are preparing for uh, what God is doing, 27 baptisms. How many praise God for that? And we want to make sure that there is space. There's space for everybody. We've all heard no pain, no gain. So please uh, endure that with us over the next several weeks. Also, uh, I'm so excited that we get a chance to serve the world. And we got two big trips coming to, for Costa Rica uh, as a family. Maybe you've been thinking, man, I'd love to go on a mission trip as a family. We're going to be doing a family missions trip June 10th. If you want to find out more, stop at our information desk. As a family, you could do that. Maybe parents with their kids. And then the following week for our young adults, if you're 20, 30-something, and you want to go with a group of young adults to Costa Rica to serve as well, June 17th, that's going to be happening. I would love for you to be a part of that. Well, for those of you who have been with us over the last several weeks, you know that we have been studying an old statement of faith that comes from just years after the resurrection of Jesus, where the church began to uh, ask the question, how do we communicate what we believe to a world that maybe is confused about the Christian message? You know, throughout every generation, it's been incumbent upon believers to clarify what it is we believe. And so every generation has tried to communicate in one way or the other, these things we believe. Now, if we're not careful, I mentioned this on Friday, if you were with us, my father was a history teacher for 27 years before he uh, went on to be with the Lord. And he taught me not to fall into the sin or the trap of chronological snobbery, to think that a contemporary generation is somehow wiser, smarter, or more insightful than the ones that have come before us. The fact of the matter is, and if you're under 40, you really need to hear this, there's much we can learn from those who came before us, even though they didn't have Google. Now, if you, if you pay attention to the generations that came before us, what they did really, really well, many of them is in very efficient words communicate what it is they believed. And today I want to talk about that. The essential, the essential truth of the resurrection. The resurrection is not only ultimately important, it is essentially important, and we're going to talk about that today. But first, I want to read for what has become known as the Apostles' Creed, not because the Apostles wrote it, but because it dates back to the time immediately following the Apostles, and it is based off of what they taught in the Scriptures where we will ultimately land. These words will be on the screen, and I invite you to read them with me, either silently or you are welcome to read aloud with me. They start with two very powerful words, I believe. If someone were to ask you what you believe, 
I pray that you will be ready to respond because what you believe about God is the most defining thing about your reality and who you are. Let's read together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. We'll stop there. There's more to the creed that we will pick up in the weeks to come. But if you were to ask those who shaped and formed and proclaimed this statement, how crucial is the resurrection to Christian faith? They would say no, sal- no, no resurrection, no salvation that you had to believe in order to be saved. If you were asked to ask the apostles who comprised the New Testament, they would affirm the same. The resurrection is important and essential truth for two big reasons. The first is what I just shared, and that is it's essential for salvation. Those of us who are familiar with the New Testament will remember that the apostle Paul said it this way in Romans 10 and 9. That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Notice that belief in the fact that God has raised Jesus from the dead is essential. Why? It's because the resurrection is the public proclamation of the victory of the cross. None of the cross makes sense if there's, if there's no resurrection. If all Jesus was, was a good moral teacher who shared with us some great ethical principles and then died, he'd be no different than any other great philosopher. But the fact that he rose from the grave is, is confirmation that he is exactly who he says he was, and that is the Son of God sent into the world to rescue us from our sins. Amen? And so we believe in the resurrection. But the second reason why the resurrection is important is because of our future hope. How many have a future hope? How many look at the future not through eyes of fear and sadness, but through an eye of a future hope? I love what German theologian Eric Sauer says, I was reading him earlier this week, and he says, we live between two Easter's. The first Easter was marked by the resurrection of the Redeemer, and the second Easter that's coming will be marked by the resurrection of the redeemed. In other words, there's a day that is coming where we will participate in the resurrection of Jesus. When he raises from the dead, it is with a promise attacks that all who put their faith and trust in me will live and live again. That means that death is no longer a period. Death is only a comma for those who have trusted in him. Now, there's a lot of ways I could go with our message today. I could spend the next few moments defending the resurrection. Certainly, Paul does that in the chapter we're going to look at today. 
but I don't want to spend all of my time defending the resurrection. I want to assume that the resurrection actually happened. Can we agree on that in this room, that the resurrection actually did take place? So if that is true, it is by definition the main event of human history. It is by definition the most important event, the watershed moment of human history. Jesus raising from the dead after living a sinless life, dying for our sins, securing reconciliation with God, and, and excusing those who put their faith in him from the penalty and judgment of sin, there is no greater moment in history, in your life or in previous history before you were born, that is greater than the resurrection. But here's my question for you and for me. What is then the present power of the resurrection on the way that we live? In other words, if you believe in the resurrection, it cannot be moderately important to us. If you believe in the resurrection, it is of infinite importance. If he is not raised from the dead, then Christianity is of no importance. The apostles lied. We're still dead in our sins. There is no hope. But if he has, as we have agreed, rose from the dead, and by the way, that was confirmed through authority, the testimony of Scripture, through history, the eyewitnesses who saw the post-resurrected Jesus, and also logically, why else would the apostles apostles die for a lie. They wouldn't have. They died because they were convinced after seeing the resurrected Lord that he was worth living for and dying for. So if the resurrection happened, it should change the way you live. Has it? If you believe in the resurrection, it should cause kids to want to be baptized. If you believe in the resurrection, it should cause young adults to say, I want to be a missionary that reaches the unreached peoples of the world. If you believe in the resurrection, it should cause those who are rich in this world to say, I want to invest my resources in the spread of the gospel across the globe. If you believe in the resurrection, it should cause those who are facing death to do so differently with hope and with great peace. If you and I believe in the resurrection, it should cause those of us who have been wounded and mistreated and abused by people to offer to them the same mercy and grace and forgiveness we have received in Christ. Resurrection is not moderately or mildly important. It is not something that only affects our Sundays. It affects every day of our lives. And this is what the Apostle Paul argues in what is the greatest chapter on the resurrection in our Bibles. Join me in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if you have your Bibles, open them with me there. There should be one in front of you if you need one. If you have your apps, you can open it there, or you can just Google 1 Corinthians 15, and it'll get you there. We're going to look at just a few verses, starting in verse number 20. And what we're going to consider today are three implications of how now we should live in light of the resurrection. What does the resurrection mean for how I live today? And the first thing that we see, the Apostle Paul who wrote this arguing is that Jesus' victory means that all believers 
will be made alive. It means that everyone who has trusted in him will live and live again. Let's read verse number 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all died, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Now, I love these words. The Apostle Paul starts off not weakly, but boldly. He starts off confidently with these words, but in fact, Christ has raised from the dead, period, full stop. He says it is a fact that Christ has raised from the dead. Again, confirmed over and over again. And this is the testimony of the empty tomb, that Christ has risen. He has risen indeed. There's a reason why we sing today. There's a reason why some of you even dress a little nicer today. There's a reason why we're going out to dinners today, many of you. It's because we are celebrating something. And what are we celebrating? We are celebrating the fact that he not only died, but he predicted that if you bury this body in three days, I will raise it up again. And how many are grateful that he pulled it off and that he is who he says he is. But he doesn't stop there, does he? He goes on to say that he is the first fruit of those who have fallen asleep. Now, by using the word, the phrase fallen asleep, he is referring to death with a euphemism. And this is consistent throughout the, the New Testament. Jesus even referred to death as falling asleep. Isn't that a sweet way of thinking of death? As you get older, you start thinking of those things. I certainly am as I get older. When you're younger, you are infinite. You can't die. You can't even get hurt. But as you get older, you start hurting yourself when you ain't even trying. I can pull, I can pull a hamstring just by sitting the wrong way now that I'm over 45. So, so as you get older, your mortality becomes real to you. And the realer it becomes, the more you are wondering what happens after death. Well, Jesus says, I don't want it to be a mystery. For those who have put their faith and trust in me, I want you to see my resurrection as a first fruit. Now, by calling it a first fruit, he's referring to what the Jews used to do, and that is to give the first of their harvest to the Lord. They would grow crops, or they would give the first of their animals as unto the Lord. These offerings were to bless the whole. The first fruit blesses the whole. So what he's saying is his resurrection blesses the whole of those who have trusted in him that we can look forward to a resurrection as well. This has broad implications broad implications. This means that we don't mourn like those who have no hope. This means as much as we may love living in this earth, in this present world, we also know to be absent in the body is to be present with the Lord, and that is far greater. We stay here simply because there is work to be done, but we don't fear what happens after death. Because what happens after death is eternal life. We are welcomed into the presence 
of the God who loved us from eternity past into eternity future, and we get the privilege of living with him in the great joy of his kingdom forever and ever and ever, and that is worth praising about. But notice, notice what he says. He says that there are two representatives, and you got to choose who represents you. Maybe the operative phrases in these first couple verses is in Adam or in Christ. Which one are you in? Are you in Adam? <clears throat> because if you are, if Adam is your representative, then there is nothing to hope for in the future. There's only the prospects of death and eternal damnation. If you are in Christ, there is much to hope for, namely eternal life. Now, who is your representative? Adam represents humanity living in autonomy from the will of God. That when, whenever we live an autonomous life, and that word autonomous is a Greek word that means free from law or apart from law. We have no law in our lives. When the rule and reign of God <laughs> is not present in the way we live our lives, we have in essence, selected Adam as our representative. When the way that you live your marriage is as if God has not spoken on the matter, you're living as if Adam is your representative. If the way you raise your kids is not influenced and impacted by the word of God, the will of God revealed in the scriptures, then in essence, you have selected Adam as your representative. And the way that you live your, your public life, your professional life, your business life, if it's not influenced by God's word, ways, and will, then you have selected Adam as your representative. Now, Jesus represents submission to God, humanity in submission to God. And this is what the proverb writer gets at in Proverbs 3 when he says those familiar words, trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways do what? Acknowledge him. And he will do what? Direct your paths. In all your ways acknowledge him. When you do that, then you're living as Jesus is your representative. When you decide the way that I love my spouse should be influenced by the way Jesus loved me. The way that I raise my kids should be influenced by what the Word of God teaches. The way that I go about my public and professional life should be influenced by the teachings of Christ. I should be submitted in every way. How many have a heart to do the will of God in every area of your life? Show me your hands. How many? Praise God for the three, the four, or five of you that said <laughs> yes. Right? But, but many of us want to, that means Jesus is your representative. I use this representative language because we're a political people. We've been culturally conditioned to the political realities. And I think all of us know the, the, the harm that comes, the danger that comes when you select the wrong representative. You select the wrong rep representative, it does much harm to you and to your neighbor. But far more dangerous than you selecting the wrong political representative is you selecting the wrong spiritual representative. If you live apart from the law of God, then your representative is Adam, and death is the only future that is proposed. But when Jesus is your representative, how many thank God there is hope and hope eternal because he is risen from the grave? 
Choose Christ. Choose Christ. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on to explain to us in the next few verses that Jesus' victory means much for his enemies as well. It means that all of his enemies will be defeated. And I get excited about this as well. It goes on to say in verse 23, but each in his own order, referring back to the resurrection, there's an order to it. Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. You have to understand why the Bible talks in these ways. It talks in this way because there's a direct correlation between sin and death. You see, when Adam sinned, God told him that the moment of your disobedience, going back to Genesis The moment of your disobedience, you shall surely die. When sin enters, death enters. That is true for the world. That is true for our life as well. But here is what Jesus has come to do. He has come to strip death and sin of its power. By going to the cross, he defeats death and sin and strips it of its power to rule and reign over our lives. That means, friends, we no longer have to be bound by the power of sin. That means that you, if you've trusted in Christ, have been given the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, and now you don't have to follow your appetites only. You can now follow the will and the way of God, not out of your own strength, but because of the strength of God given to us by his mercy and grace. Praise God for that. But that also means that we no longer have to fear death. And I wonder if you believe that. Today I believe that. I'm convinced of that. And today is a significant day for for me and for our family. Because today would have been my oldest son Chris's birthday. And many of you know our family story. It was but four years ago that our son died. It was a devastating thing in our lives. Any parent who has gone through that knows the heaviness of it. And it's such a heaviness that it will crush you if you don't have a hope that eclipses the heaviness. But here's the joy that I have today. I have the joy of an empty tomb. I have the joy of the resurrection. I have a hope that eclipses the heaviness of my son's death. As a matter of fact, I am convinced that he is more alive today than he ever was on earth. That he is worshiping in the presence of the Lord and experiencing the full actualization of his faith, celebrating what we here on earth get a glimpse of, he's experiencing in full technicolor the resurrected Savior. And that's a promise not just for me, but for all of you who have loved ones who trusted in Christ and have gone before you. That's a promise for you who have a terminal illness. That's a promise for you 
who are getting older and thinking about the finish line. It's a promise for all of us that death has been defeated. Jesus is exalted. And because he lives, we live also. Praise be to God. So if you believe that, here's the question. How would you live differently if you knew you couldn't die? How would you live differently if you knew death had no power? How would you serve the Lord? Maybe you've been living with fear because, uh, man, death has been this uh, bully that has had you intimidated and afraid. But because of the cross of Christ, I no longer have to be afraid. I can serve God boldly. I can serve him courageously. And so can you because Jesus secured our victory. But let me just tell you, defeating the power of death and sin is only part of the promise. But he gives us a promise of a future resurrection. Remember, we live in between two Easter's. The first Easter is historic. That's what we're dressed up for to celebrate today, the fact that Jesus did raise from the grave. But there's a future day that's coming. Notice that he says that he is the first, but then at his coming, those who are dead in Christ are going to be raised from the grave as well. There's another Easter coming, and the promise of that Easter is not only are we going to be free from the power of death, we're going to be free from the presence of death. Not only are we going to be free from the power of sin, we're going to be free from the presence of sin. Right now, I don't live under the power of it, but it's all around me. All you got to do is cut on the news and you see it. But how many are looking forward to the day where there will be no more wars? where there will be no more corruption, where there will be no more sadness, no more weeping, no more fighting. How many are living for the day where there will be a new heaven and a new earth? Praise God, because of the res resurrection, he is making all things new. Oh, he is worthy of following. Because of time, I'm going to land this plane, not because I want to. I'm preaching myself happy, but I'm going to keep going. <laughs> the third thing that happens as a result of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, his victory means that all things will be reconciled to the Father. Let me read verses 27 and 28 quickly into your hearing. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son will, be, will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. You talk about a tongue twister, say that. 10 times fast. It's a whole lot of subjections in there. What is it talking about? Well, to understand these verses, you got to go back in time, not just to the beginning, but before the beginning, because it was before the beginning when the Godhead devised the plan of salvation. And I want to read this quote to you by J.I. Packard. He's a theologian who says this, God is triune. There are three within the Godhead, three persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He goes on to say the work of salvation is one in which all three act together. The Father proposing redemption, the Son securing it, and the Spirit applying it before eternity past have begun. Here is what the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit devised, that the Father would propose redemption, that the 
son would come in a way that would subordinate himself only in earth, but not in the eternal Godhead. He would come to serve for our salvation as a sinless lamb to secure our redemption, and that through faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit would bring us regeneration. Before we were formed, before we made a mistake, before we sinned, God had already made a plan to rescue you. Let me say this again. You may think you're too far gone. You may think you messed up too much, but God, before you were ever created, decided that no sin you did was going to be greater than his plan. He is able to save any and everyone who calls upon his name. How many believe that with all of your heart? So here's what it's saying. What it's saying is just like an emperor over an empire sends out a general to defeat the foes, the father sent the son into the world to defeat every foe, and after every foe has been defeated, the son comes back like a conquering general to say to the emperor that the empire is secure, that victory has been won, and then he takes his rightful seat at the right hand of the father for eternity and eternity. And here's what Jesus has done. On that cross, he secured our victory. The resurrection is the public declaration of the finished work and the victory of the cross. It is the announcement that the reign of God has come upon us. And if we trust in him, we can have joy, oh what joy, today, and we can have hope, hope unshakable for tomorrow. So today I invite you to trust in him, to put your faith in him. Because if you do, you will have the security of knowing the promise of his coming when he cracks that midnight sky is that you won't have to be ashamed, but he will call you up to be with him. And so shall we be forever with the Father because of the Son. Praise God and amen. How many thank God for that truth? I want to invite you to stand. For there is a day that is coming. The Bible says every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. In heaven and in earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, but you don't have to wait today. If you want to give your life to Jesus, please connect. I, I would love to connect with you. There'll be friends up front. There'll be some in the lobby all over the church. But we know some of you may have to run. And so if you do, there's a number on the screen. If you can just text the word gospel, G-O-S-P-E-L, we'd love to wrap our arms around you and help you to take your next steps in your journey with Jesus. But don't leave today without making a decision for Christ. Let's pray.